Today's scripture comes from Matthew 22, 34-40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's pray together. Yeah, Heavenly Father, I thank you that all those years ago, uh, you spoke like a father to your son Israel, teaching and instructing leading and guiding them with these ten words that we'll look at over the course of the summer. I pray that, Lord, as we listen today, uh, that we would hear these words as your children, eager to obey, eager to love you and to serve you and to love and serve others because of the love shown to us in your Son, Christ Jesus. So help us. Help us to hear your word. Help us to conform our lives to your word that we might ultimately glorify you and make you known in this neighborhood amongst these people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we begin a series uh, called Ten Words. And ten words, if you don't know, is just a fancy way to say ten commandments. Uh, the word in, in the Hebrew is literally words, not commandments. And so we're saying ten words. That's how we spice things up. A little bit, okay? So 10 words, 10 commandments, same thing. At the beginning of every series, I love to give you resources, just because I like books personally. And so if you like books, listen up. If you don't, ignore what I'm about to say for the next 10 seconds. Um, this first book is called The Ten Commandments, great title, uh, by Peter Lightheart. It's a great sort of uh, biblical theology of, of where the Ten Commandments sit. And so I would highly, highly recommend this to you. This is called 10 Words to Live By by Jen Wilkin. Very good, very practical. And again, uh, Kevin DeYoung, uh, The Ten Commandments. Again, creative title uh, for the book. It's also a great book. I'll leave these up here for you to look at. You cannot take them because we need to preach through these uh, this summer, okay? Resources for you. Be blessed as you look at them. Well, in Exodus 20, and in Deuteronomy 5, but we'll be primarily in Exodus 20 this summer. In Exodus 20, we find the ten words. And these 10 words, I don't think it's hyperbole to say, literally changed the world. These 10 words changed the world. It's on the basis of these 10 words in Exodus 20 that entire societies were built. And so Charlemagne, he, he laid the foundations for the Europe to come on the basis of the 10 commandments. Uh, during the Reformation in the 16th century, Martin Luther said this, no work or anything can be good unless it is in keeping with the Ten Commandments. More recently, Alan Dershowitz, Harvard Law professor, said, the Ten Commandments are clearly a precursor to all Western law, including American law. The Ten Commandments are historically quite significant, but, but many of us, again, if we're honest, might struggle to understand why they matter for us today. I mean, culturally speaking, if the Ten Commandments or Ten Words are even known, they are considered at best, like, outdated, right? At worst, 
They're archaic, the ramblings of a jealous and and vengeful God who wants to impose rules and regulations on our life. But even within the church, we we struggle to understand, don't we, the the practicality of, of the 10 words for our life today. When's the last time you were talking with somebody, a brother or sister in Christ, and they said to you, you know what, I have some counsel for you, and it comes from Exodus 20. It's, you shall not covet. When's the last time you heard something like that? We don't know what to do with them. And and maybe even more concerning in that within the church is that we don't know what, if any, the Old Testament law has for us today, what authority it has for us today. With this in mind, here's how we're going to approach this morning. This morning we're not looking at any of the ten words. I want us to set the groundwork, so to speak. I want us to see four rules, sorry, four reasons to listen and four rules to understanding this summer. I want to give you four reasons why you should listen this summer and why this is important. And the first is this. I want to quote from Kevin DeYoung's book. He says this. says, Studying the Ten Commandments reveals the very heart of human rebellion. We don't like God telling us what we can and cannot do. I don't like it. You don't like it. None of us like at least initially, being told what to do. Now, now the ten words we'll discover, the ten commandments, are more than just commandments. They're more than just rules. But they're not less. They're not less. In keeping them, we will find life and flourishing and all good things. But because we don't like being told what to do, we, we and isn't this true, we prefer the language of relationship over rules. And it's become quite a common phenomenon in Christianity these days to pit relationships against rules, right? We say things like this. Christianity isn't about rules. It's about relationship. It's a very, very uh, common phrase. And in one sense, that's absolutely true. Before Exodus 20 and the giving of the ten words, we find Israel fresh out of Egyptian oppression, Egyptian slavery, now at the foot of Mount Sinai, three months later. And at the foot of Sinai, God speaks these words to Moses to speak to Israel. He says this. He says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Unlike any nation, God has a unique relationship with Israel. We read in Exodus 19 that he's called them out as his treasured possession. And the same is true for us as his church. We are the church, God's treasured possession, his beloved bride, people on whom he has set his love and his favor and his blessing. But but listen... Just as Israel was not called out alone or by themselves, you were not called out individually either. You were called out as a people. And when we pit rules versus relationships with God, we forget that our faith is a communal faith. That we have been joined not only to Christ, but also to one another. 
And Jen Wilkins, she says this, Christianity is about a relationship with God and others. And because this statement is true, Christianity is also unapologetically about rules. For rules show us how to live in those relationships. Rather than threaten relationships, rules enable it. And Wilkin goes on to remind us that, that Jesus did not pit rules and relationships against each other. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, relationship, if you love me, you will do what? Just love me? Just keep on loving me? Just have that feeling of love towards me? No. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we have to get rid of that dichotomy, that false dichotomy. We need the 10 words because they facilitate our relationship, both with one another and with God. Second reason. Second reason you should listen this summer is because we are an ethically shallow people. We do things just because we do things. We don't do something or we do do something just because that's how we've always done it. Our ethics are, are, are superficial, we could say. Our ethics, these rules that we live by, are, are two-dimensional, we could say. So, for example, we'll read this summer in Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. And we will think, check. Did it, Jesus. Didn't murder. Didn't kill. Next, next commandment. But, but if we stop there, if we just stop there, we'll miss what the sixth commandment really has to say to us. See, see, the commandments come to us, yes, as commandments, but also as wisdom literature. And as wisdom literature, think about a cow chewing on a piece of cud, a bowl of grass. And the cow is extracting all the nutrients from that piece of grass. And over time, as he maws on it and chews on it, right, it, more and more and more is, is, is taken from it. And the commandments work the same way. And so, for example, if we were to chew on the sixth commandment without taking too much from that preacher, if we were to chew on it, we'd see that in this commandment is an assumption about human dignity, that people are worth something. They have value, right? And that tiny but profound idea changed the world. If we were to chew on this commandment, we'd miss the, or we'd see the nuance between murder and self-defense and capital punishment, We'd ask questions of what does this mean for our participation or our abstaining from war? We're chewing on it. If we were to chew on it further, we'd see Jesus extrapolating this command to include anger, oh, harsh words. See, we'll miss all of this if we don't stop and like a cow chewing on the cud, take what was previously two-dimensional and, and begin to see it in, in, in three dimensions. Take what was previously black and white to us, you shall not murder, and, and have it filled out in color for us. I have no doubt there are going to be moments this summer when you hear command read, think you understand it, and, and you'll be tempted to turn off or let your mind wander. But if we have ears to hear, our, our ethics this summer can go deep. Our world can be broadened. What is black and white can begin to be seen in color. That's the second reason. We're ethically shallow people. Third reason. The third reason you should listen this summer is because you might think that you're a good person. You might think that. You might come in this morning and think, you know, honestly, I'm pretty good. 
in 2014 as part of a, um, a publicity stunt for a book they were writing. Two authors, uh, they crowdsourced for 10 non-commandments. 10 non-commandments, right? Commandments for our day and age, secular commandments as they were. And, and here are just four of them. I'll put them on the screen. They, they ended up with 10, but here's just four to give you a taste. So they came up with, you know, be open-minded and willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence, right? That's a good secular creed, right? Every person has the right to control of their body. Uh, there is no one right way to live. Uh, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Now, now there's much to say that we could say about these, these non-commandments, including the fact that number three kind of invalidates all the commandments, right? Because you're saying there's actually a way to live here, right? And so it's contradictory and, and, and doesn't make sense. But what I want us to see here is that try as we might, and we're trying really, really hard, we are still a society with a moral code. We haven't abandoned morality. It's just changing. It's just in flux all the time. And it's by these always changing cultural imperatives that we assess whether we're good people or not. So we switch from plastic to paper. We learn the new accepted vernacular. We wear clothes made closer to home, thinking on this basis that we are good people. But if our cultural standard is always shifting, always changing, can we really be sure that we're good? Can we really be sure that we've arrived? See, in the, the ten words, we find God's self-disclosure. We find what God is like, but we also find what God likes. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It is after you realize that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this, and not a moment sooner, and I love this line, he says that Christianity begins to talk. That Christianity begins to talk. Lewis continues to say, and this is in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, when you know that you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. This summer... As, as uncomfortable as it will be, and it will be uncomfortable, we're going to see that we're desperately sick. That we're not the good people we thought we were. And if you're looking for, for more biblical evidence of this point, this is exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you know in Romans 7, Paul has said elsewhere, like, listen, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the best of the best. I had arrived. I had done all the prescriptions of the law. But in Romans 7, he says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? He says, by no means. Listen to what Paul says here. Yet if, I had, yet if it had not been for the law, I would, have not no, I would not have known sin. That's how you say that. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So Paul, just like us, a good man, best of the best, Hebrew of the Hebrews. But then the law showed Paul the sin in his own heart. In fact, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Over the next 11 weeks, time and time and time again, what we'll find is that the Lord wants to unearth in us some of the depths of our sin. 
the depths of our transgressions. And it's precisely in those moments when your sin is right before you, and it's ugly, and you can smell it, and it's not good, that we need to see this fourth thing, this fourth reason to listen this summer. Fourthly, you should listen this summer because this is the life that you've been free to live. It is so, so, so important that we bring from us, uh, bring with us from week to week in this series this one simple refrain. And, and I hope every other preacher, just a little heads up, Jacob and Paul and, and Cody, repeats this in their week. Because we need to hear this. Do not try living these ten words if you are still in Egypt. Don't try conforming your life to the revealed will of God as seen in these ten words if you are still in slavery to sin. And here's what I mean. It's obvious, but it's worth saying. Exodus 20 comes after Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, God, we saw, graciously called Israel out of Egypt, set his love upon them and called them his treasured possession. And it's from this place that God's people are to obey, and not the reverse. Next week, we'll see that right before the first word, God prefaces the Ten Commandments by saying this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, the ten words are not twelve rules for, for a better life. Seven habits of a highly effective team. Six tips for getting along. It's not what they are. The ten words are only for the redeemed. Only for the redeemed. Only for those who've been freed from sin. Otherwise, what will the ten words do to you? Crush you. Destroy you. You know, as a parent, I try doing this sometimes. Giving my kids morality without the gospel, what does it do to them? Destroys them. Oh, oh, oh heavy on them, a burden. And what does Jesus say about his commands? That they're not burdensome. See, the ten words are for the redeemed. Those have been purchased out of slavery. And for us, our redemption comes through the blood of Christ. Purchased by Christ, we belong to Christ. And our belonging to him is not just a matter of a verbal confession, it's a matter of our entire lives. So before we look at the, the four rules for understanding this morning, let me say really explicitly, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. But let me just tell you out of the gate, the role of these sermons this summer is unique for you. The law reveals our need so that, as Lewis said, Christianity can begin to talk to you, speak to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, these ten words are for you. They are intended to give you practical, on-the-ground roadmap to what it means to belong to Jesus and not yourself anymore. So that's why you should listen. Our hearts are rebellious. Our ethics are shallow. Our cultural ground is shifting. And finally, our lives no longer belong to us. So what does it mean to belong to Jesus? The, the ten words will show us. Point two. Four rules for understanding. Four rules for understanding. Are, are we still, we're still good? This week, I'm just going to confess right now, is more teaching and less sort of on-the-ground application, and I apologize, but I'm not really sorry. Um, this is a set the next week's up really well. 
So four rules for understanding to make sure that we're listening going forward really well and appropriately. I want to say this. A common objection I've heard, and no doubt you've heard if you've talked about your faith in the public sphere, is that anytime there's an appeal to the law, it's that Christians are wildly inconsistent, right? Perhaps you've heard this as well, and it goes like this. On one hand, we Christians say, do not murder, right? And honor your mother and father, and, and, and don't go sleeping around. And on the other hand, no one is going around ensuring that, that the shirt you're wearing is not of mixed fabric, right? As Leviticus 19 verse 9 actually prohibits. I don't know if you knew that. Furthermore, no one's going around legislating that uh, a young goat is not boiled in its mother's milk, which Exodus 23, verse 19, only three chapters removed, forbids. So how can this be true? How can we say yes to one and no to some others? And this apparent inconsistency lies at the heart of the question we need to answer this morning. How do we understand the role of the law for us today? In other words, should I actually listen this summer? Or is this just old stuff that doesn't matter anymore? Do the ten words have any relevance for me? And here's the first rule. And the first rule will sound like I'm contradicting everything I've said so far, so just hold on. But the first rule we need to bring to understanding the summer is this. It will be on the screen. We are no longer under the Old Testament law. Let me explain. Daniel's laughing, let me explain. The Bible is a story. It's a story. And like any story, it unfolds as it progresses. And in particular, the biblical story is marked by these things called covenants, these oath agreements between man and God. And the covenant that we find here in Exodus 20 is called the Mosaic Covenant, or the covenant given through Moses that happened at Mount Sinai. So we have this covenant here. Again, to reference back to Exodus 19, this law in this covenant was given to distinguish God's people from the nations. And you know, if you read the rest of the story, the rest of the Old Testament at least, you know that Israel does not do a good job upholding this covenant. They fail again and again and again. And there are some good moments, don't hear me wrong, there, there are some high points, but those high points are typically followed by real low points. Like real, real low points. And so as we go to the New Testament, as, as we flip to the New Covenant, God sends his son. And the mission of his son Jesus is to ratify, to enact a new covenant with his people through his life and death and resurrection and the sending of his spirit. God is going to do a, a new thing, a new thing. And Jeremiah 31 tells us about this new thing. There we read that God will put my law within them, that's his people, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, so, so we don't have, nor do we need, the stone tablets that Moses received. Why? Because you and I, according to Jeremiah 31 and the witness of the New Testament, have the law written on our hearts by the Spirit of God. It's a profound truth, prophesied in the Old Testament, coming to fulfillment in Christ. And so Jesus comes, and according to Hebrews verse 8, makes the first covenant obsolete. We have been, according to Romans 7 verse 6, released 
from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And in Galatians, we see there the law pictured as a guardian or a tutor, keeping us unto the the gospel for a period of time. Then Paul says in Galatians 3.25 that we are no longer under this guardian. So just really simply put, and this is a big complex issue, but really simply put, Christians are no longer under the Old Testament law in the same way Israel was. The question becomes then, in view of this, and, and, and Tom Schreiner, he's a scholar, he asked it really well, the question becomes not, why do we keep some of the commands of the Old Testament, but why do we keep any of the commands in the Old Testament? And, and before you take your scissors to your Bibles and cut out parts of it, don't do that. Let me get, bring you to rule number two. Rule number two is this. We are now under Christ's law. So the language of Exodus is this. We have been freed from Egypt, freed from sin, freed from the devil, not to serve ourselves and not to serve the gods of Egypt or other foreign gods, but we have been freed, and we've talked about this in 1 Corinthians, to serve God, freed to serve. And the way we serve God as as new covenant people, people who have put our faith in Jesus, is first by acknowledging really fundamentally that all the law has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Let me just let me just show you. This is really important that we see it. We no longer need to offer sacrifices, right? When you came this morning, there was no animal at the front. I did not have a knife in my hand. There was no altar here to catch all the blood. We no longer need to offer sacrifices because Christ has come as our once and for all sacrifice. There's no repeating of that sacrifice. We no longer need to abstain from, from mixed fabrics or, or certain foods because we have been declared clean in Christ. He has washed us. And this will be really interesting when we get to the, the, the fourth commandment. But, but actually, contrary to some recent popular thought, we no longer under the law of the Sabbath anymore. We don't have to keep the Sabbath in the same way because Christ, our Sabbath rest, has come. The law, to quote Romans 10, found its goal, its end, its fulfillment in Jesus. And so we can think of it like a journey. At the beginning of the journey, we had to cross an ocean. And so we had a boat, right? We got in a boat to cross the ocean. But now that we've reached dry land, we cross not on a boat, but but, but with our feet, with our bodies. The, The law reached its goal, fulfilled its purpose to bring us to Christ. Uh, To quote Hebrews, the law, which was a shadow, found its substance in Jesus. And this is what Jesus means when he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. It's not just the law that prophesies, sorry, not just the prophets that prophesy, but also the law. The law prophesies. Prophesies and points to the coming of Jesus one who would come, having washed us clean, give us new hearts with the law written on them, new hearts empowered by the Holy Spirit, now to obey Christ's law. And let me just show you what I mean really quickly, because this is so important we get this right. In our series in 1 Corinthians, do you remember that? We have to do 1 Corinthians over again. 1 Corinthians 9, right? Where we were and where we've been for the past year. There Paul says what? I've restricted my rights. 
I've held back from some rights that are rightfully mine. That's why he calls them rights. He says, I haven't received a paycheck from you, Corinthians. Furthermore, to the Jews, I've become like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I've become like Gentiles. To the weak, I've become weak, he says. Paul does all this. Why does he do this? He says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, because I am under the law of Christ. So what motivates Paul? What keeps Paul going to, to do the things that he does, to, to, to give up his life, to, to lay it down for these people? I am under the law of Christ, he says. And it's really similar to what he says in Galatians 6, verse 2. Listen. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the question for us today, you and me, sitting here, wondering what are we talking about, is what is the law of Christ? What is this law that we are under? And now finally, almost three-quarters of the way through the sermon, we come to the text that we read this morning. In Matthew 22, Matthew 22, Jesus is in a corner. At least the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians like to think he's in a corner. They're trying to trap him, to catch him in his own words. And one of those things they want to catch him about is the law. Let's hear our reading again. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus takes the ten words, which if you look at them, five about loving God, five about loving neighbor. Jesus takes the ten words, the ten commandments, and says, here's how they're summed up. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. This is the law that we are under, you could say. Paul puts it like this. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves what? For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and then listen, he's quoting from the ten words, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What do you owe one another, church? What do you owe the person in front of you, behind you, to the left and to the right of you? Paul says simply this, that you would love them, that you would love them. You were under the law of Christ. And in case this all sounds like theological mumbo-jumbo to you, let me simplify it. When you come next week, our fleshly disposition, our, our intuitive coming together goes like this. I'm going to hear a sermon, and from that sermon, I will try harder and do better. I will try harder to conform my life to God's word. I will do better to conform my life to God's word. I must try harder and do better. But John tells us that we love God and we love others because God first loved us. So instead next week, and this will sound strange, but, but just go with me. Next week when you come, come like a bride goes to her husband. 
Think about that for a second. If you're married, imagine your wedding day. Do you know that one of the most prominent ways the Bible talks about us is like a beloved bride? Come this summer eager to love as the beloved. I wanted to see how this changes everything for us. In this way of thinking, that false dichotomy of rules versus relationships quickly falls apart, right? If I was to go out and commit adultery, to cheat on my wife, how inappropriate, to say the least, would it be for me to turn to my wife and say, you know what, I thought this was more of a relationship, not a rules thing. You know? What's with, like, you know, you're asking me not to do things. But if the church is the bride of Christ, we come each week to hear from our lover as strange as it might be to, to, to your ears, to hear from the one who loves us, who has poured out his love on us as seen in the cross. And so we come each week to love as the beloved. And we must remember this. Rule number two is that we're now under Christ's law, so we read the ten words from that place as the beloved. Rule number three. We look to the ten words for how they reveal God's character. We look to the ten words for how they reveal God's character. Each week we're going to ask this question, what does this word reveal to me about the God who gave it? And I wanted to show us this by contrast. Uh, probably the, the most famous law code not called the Ten Commandments is called the uh, Hammurabi Codex. Uh, the Hammurabi Codex, or the Codex Hammurabi, from Babylonia, 18th century BC. Um, you can put it on the screen, Neil. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, that's called the Steely I learned that this week. It's called the Steely. If you want to see that, you can go to the Louvre uh, and, and you can look at it. And, it, and it's amazing. It's, it's, it's really, really cool. Um, but Hammurabi's Codex it, it is not revelation uh, from the gods. It's not. Uh, Hammurabi's Codex is propaganda from the king to the gods about how good the king is doing at being a king, about, about uh, enacting just laws. And so it goes from here to here, not from here to here, like the Ten Commandments do for, for us. It's from the king to the gods. But in contrast, the ten words are being received from God. We read in Exodus 31, were written with the finger of God, come directly from God. Which means they not only tell us what God expects from us, but also what we can expect from God. What God is like. So we'll be invited this summer to consider what kind of God commands us not to steal. What does it say about God that we should not covet? Could it be God is generous? Could it be God is a God who gives us what we truly need, not what we think we need? So rule number three is asking this. What does this reveal about God's character? What does this reveal about who God is to us? Finally, rule number four. We read the ten words as promises. Let me end with this. If we read the words rightly, in view of the new covenant in Christ, in view of the Holy Spirit living in us, a Ray Ortland, he's a pastor, he says this, we can read in hope because the same God who has given us a new heart all on his own, will 
all on his own, move each commandment from the pages of the Bible down into the deepest instincts of our personalities. If I can borrow a bit from our text last week in Romans 8, just as surely as God has justified us, and just as surely as God will glorify us, God will conform us to the image of his Son who perfectly embodies the ten words. See, before the ten words are anything else, before they are ethics, before they are foundations for society, before they are wisdom, the ten words are a character portrait of Jesus, the Son of God. Each week come looking and eager, being eager to fall in love with Jesus. See in these ten words a picture of the one who did not murder but was murdered on our behalf who did not steal or take, but laid down his life for us, who did not bear false witness, but is in fact the truth, who honored his father, always doing what his father said. Come each week seeing Jesus. See, as Israel kept and obeyed the ten words their entire life, Augustine wrote, the, the life of the people foretold and foreshadowed Christ. And in the same way, when we keep the ten words, we both point back at Christ who has come, but also forward to Christ who is coming again. So Christ City, listen with hope this summer. God will do this work in you as you submit to him. And listen with humility. We ought not let ourselves off the hook too easily we will see that the most straightforward commands, when chewed upon, when meditated upon, have much sin and growth to reveal in us, as well as an opportunity to, to experience God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a God that we have to brag to or, or tell you about what we're doing, but you're a God who's seeing all things reveals himself to us. We thank you that we don't have to feel around in the dark as to what you're like. But that we can know what you're perfectly like in the person of your son Jesus as foretold and foreshadowed in these ten words. And so help us this summer, Lord, as we come under your word by your spirit, expose our sin, and at the same moment expose our belovedness in Christ that we might savor and enjoy him. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.